And that's Mark 10, 35 to 45. That's on page 846 in the House Bible in front of you, if you don't have your own. I'm going to ask you to stand if you're able, and I'm going to read our passage this morning. Mark 10, 35 to 45. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to go ahead and pray for Kevin as we get started this morning. Father, in your glory, you dreamed up salvation by coming to a broken place yourself and serving us. Thank you for doing that. Lord, give us soft hearts and open ears, open minds. Lord, show us who we are in you again today. God, how much you love us. Lord, let, let your love for us sink in and change our lives radically. Thanks for Kevin and his, um, the, the preparation that he's done this week. I said he would uh, speak through him today. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. have a voice this morning, even though I tried to will us to a win last night. <laughs> well, we're taking a short break from our series in Matthew, and we'll jump back there um, soon. We'll actually walk really slowly through the Lord's Prayer, and I'm excited for that. But right now, we're spending some time revisiting our Chorus vision, and we're walking through six identities that we have as God's people, and then six rhythms that flow out of those identities. Last week we talked about our identity as, as family. Now imagine looking at a family that looked like this. So you've got dad in the kitchen preparing dinner, running around stressed, while the soup is simmering and the bread is, is baking, he's running the vacuum, he's taking out the trash. Meanwhile, everyone else is chilling on the couch, gazing at their phones, not raising a finger to help. Or maybe picture a housing situation like this. Four roommates are sharing a home. One woman does all the shopping, handles all the cooking, keeps up with the cleaning. She takes care of the bills and meaning that she not only makes sure they're paid, but they all come out of her account. 
All the while, the other three ladies just go about their lives and never lend a hand. Now, is either of those a good picture of the way things should be? Well, of course not. If we're family, if we're household, we should act like it, right? And that's what we're going to talk about in our time today. How should we see ourselves? How should we live together if we see ourselves living in gospel community? If you were with us last week, we talked about how God himself lives in community. Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons, each equally God, in perfect unity and love forever and ever. That's how they relate, the persons of God. But if you thought about how they even work together, God the Father sends His Son to earth, and He willingly goes, He submits, and He gives. Both the Father and the Son send the Spirit to us, He submits and goes, and He willingly shines the spotlight on Jesus. The Bible talks about one day the Son giving back the kingdom to His Father. You see selfless giving, you see sacrificial love, and this is within God himself. Now that has implications for how we live together. Um, we get the opportunity to image that to the world, but I'm getting ahead of myself. I first want us to jump back into our passage for today, into Mark 10 again. And I first want you to catch the disciples' request. So Christ and the disciples are on the road, they're heading up to Jerusalem, and Jesus tells them here right before something for the third time. What is that? That he's going to die. And James and John followed it up with this ask. So maybe you've been in a situation where there's been big hard news that's been followed by bizarre, inappropriate questions. So you hear a family member, you know, in a hospital, you know, hear that they have, you know, stage three inoperable cancer. And someone just says, hey, Eric, is there a vending machine around here? Well, this goes way beyond that. A, a crazy question, a bold demand. Verse 35, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Can you imagine saying that to Jesus? Right? These guys, think about this, that elsewhere want to call down fire from heaven on people. They ignore the Lord's teaching and they follow, follow it with this selfish, offensive demand. But Jesus doesn't hurl flames at them. He kindly throws them a bone. He says, what do you want me to do for you? That's Jesus to them. And then they demand in verse 37, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. So notice this isn't, hey, you're going to die. Can I, can I please have your Blackhawks jersey? This is, you're going to rule the world. Can we be your VIPs? Jesus is on this road, leading to suffering, ultimately to death, and they're thinking about their life in the future, about their desire for fortune and glory. Maybe you've heard of the, the new ride at Six Flags, the Catwoman Whip. Well, everyone walks up eager to get on, but you should see people as they're getting off this thing, right? They're staggering. Now, I don't get motion sickness. I don't tend to get scared of rides, but I've never seen anything like that. So you have this, this massive pendulum that rotates extremely fast, 16 stories in the air. The seats that you're strapped in are also rotating as well. And I've just never felt so disoriented and out of control. And I want to tell people who are jumping into line, you're ready for fun, right? But you have no idea what you're about to get into. That's basically what Jesus says here in verse 38. You do not know what you're asking. 
You think this is going to be an awesome ride, and it, it will be in a sense, but it won't be easy. Right? Now, hear me though. In the disciples' defense, their request really wasn't actually that dumb. So think about this. They're expecting a Messiah, and everyone was in that day, the, the Jews, who will defeat the Romans, who will restore the Jewish state. They're in Jew Jesus' inner circle, and they're probably just asking, hey, we get to be with you now. Can we still be in the center then? We can even put a positive spin on it. They have faith that Jesus is going to win. But they're still clearly being selfish here. Don't we act the same way? Where we think of Jesus as a path toward our best life now. Or as a means even to getting us power in our nation. More on that in a bit. But we really shouldn't look down on James and John any more than the other disciples here. Second, then, see Christ's challenge. In verse 38, um, we've already seen part of his response. Oh, brother, you guys just don't get it. But then he goes on explaining what the ride will actually be like. He's, he says, are you able to drink the cup that I drank or to be baptized with the baptism with which I'm baptized? James and John respond, we are able Clearly, again, they have no idea what's going on. Um, they could be saying on one hand that they know that there's going to be a battle ahead before he sits on the throne, and they're saying, we're there, we're going to fight with you. And there's some nobility in that. But Jesus is getting to something more difficult. On the other hand, sometimes in that day, people thought of the cup, and you see this in the Bible, um, meaning celebration. And baptism even meaning the symbol for renewal among the Jews. And they weren't going to sign up for that. But Jesus is talking about his suffering. He's talking about his ultimate death. And that's really what they're signing up for. The cup in the Old Testament often refers to the wrath of God. So think of Jesus when he's pleading in the garden. Remove this cup from me. He's, he's talking about that cup. He's really asking his father, do I have to drink this? Is there some other way? And when the Bible talks about going under the water, about a kind of baptism in the Old Testament, it's often talking about pain, suffering, and judgment. My mind goes to, to Psalm 42, verse 7, where the psalmist cries out, Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. This is what Jesus is saying that his glory requires its suffering. And Jesus tells them, well, you aren't really able, but you're going to go through it anyway, guys. In verses 39 and 40, he essentially says, you will drink that cup, you'll be pulled under for sure, but to sit at my right hand, my place here, but to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. So there we see again that, that loving, submissive relationship I mentioned at the start. Inside our triune God, Jesus says, that's actually my Father's decision. That's what Jesus says, and he's good with that. Verse 41 says that this sets off the rest of the crew. They're indignant, it says, at James and John. They're no better than him. They likely just wanted to call shotgun themselves. And we're no better than any of them either because we want the cross without the crown as much as they do. Jesus talks. He, he cuts through the tension on the road and he gives 
what are some familiar but extremely challenging words in all of Scripture, verses 42 through 45. I want to read those again. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many. So Jesus says here, you want to be great? Become a servant. Be small. You want to be first? Then be a slave. Go last. And here he gives us this identity that should define us as his people. Now when we use that word identity... We're, we're talking about how we see ourselves, of our sense of who we are. And how do we generally talk about that? How do we generally come up with that today? You might be at a, a party or an outing and someone asks you, they don't know you, what do you do? You might respond, um, I'm a builder. I make houses for people. That's a noble vocation. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks. But what happens if a truss falls and crushes your limb or the market crashes and you lose your job? Who are you then? What's your identity? We really need a sense of who we are that goes so much deeper than that. I'm a Larson. I'm especially a Christian. And out of that fundamental way that I see myself, some other identities flow, and none are bigger than the one we see today, our third in the series, that we're servants. We're servants. Here's how we put that in cards. We are servants of God and His gospel who serve others as a way of life. We're servants of God and His gospel who serve others as a way of life. This is who we are. We're servants together. Now, if you read the New Testament, you'll notice that this becomes a title, servant, for both leaders in the church and members of the body. There are really two different words that are used. One that was used in that day for a common household slave, and another that has within its root this idea of waiting on tables. And both communicate the same idea. We're people who make ourselves low in order to lift others high. We're people who orient our lives around others and not ourselves. Of course, we first see ourselves as servants of God, but from that, we also live as servants of others. That starts in the heart, first of all, with an attitude. That moves to our hands, results in action. And we talk about it in three realms in, in Karis, time, talent, and treasure. Time, how do we use that? Is it all to seek out what I want? Talent, our gifts, do we use them for the family around us? Our treasure, our money, is it something we use just for us or for them, for him? We have to think of ourselves as servants, as servants in all three areas. And those show up in life, in our community, we're meant to serve one another. As we do that, we follow the example of our king. That's what stands out to me in this passage. We're following his example. Jesus tells his disciples back then, here today, to see ourselves in this way. And he explains that in the last sentence of this teaching. Verse 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
But who deserves to be served more than him? But he came to earth with service and life. He gave up his life. He paid the price for our redemption so we could go free. Think about it. Jesus is the one who came and washed feet. He's the one who went to the cross. He's not like the kings of this world. And he's our example, Christians. Our tendency is to want to be the celebrities, to get the attention, to get the love, to have people serve us. Like these disciples, James and John. Maybe you heard the, the story about the mom who was making pancakes for her boys one day. They started arguing about who would eat first. Bobby and Billy are going at it. And the mom thought, this is a teachable moment. And she said, hey, if Jesus were sitting here, he'd say, let my brother have the first pancake. I can wait. And Billy turned to his brother Bobby and said, hey, Bobby, you get to be Jesus today. <laughs> We want to go first. We want to sit on the throne, right? We want people to serve us. But Jesus says, no matter what you may feel, no matter what they say, that's actually the path away from greatness. It's not the way of the king. What's our posture as we live with one another? And what's the impression that we give to the world, church? As a family, we can communicate that we want to be in power. And we want people to serve us. That's one of the things that's brought so much grief over the last couple of years. A recent poll revealed that a disturbing number of Americans want our country declared a Christian nation. In case you didn't know that goes against our Constitution. But I think most importantly it goes against our Bibles. Unless we're talking about evangelism. Of course we want more and more people to know him. But we can look down on those around us, um, and we don't end up kneeling to serve. We think about elevating ourselves, not lifting others up. And like James and John and the disciples, we try to use Jesus to get what we want. And that does not fit with who we are. Ray Orland talks about there being two ways that we can walk into a room. Either we strut in and say, here I am, where we look around and we say, there you are. It's not too hard to see which one should characterize us as Christians. Now, James and John here are being trained by Jesus. They'll become leaders in his church. So this is at least a, a statement about those who are in authority, a teaching for leaders. I know that there are many people here today that want to lead in the church, in the world, and here are just a couple of things I want you to hear related to this passage. First, learn to serve if you really want to lead. Learn to serve if you really want to lead. We're seeing today what happens to self-interested leaders in the church, in the world. They implode and they explode others. Jesus is calling for servant leaders, for leaders like him. So before you go thinking about making big decisions, how about we start by stacking some chairs? As Pastor Jerome Gay puts it, he says, if service is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. Second, seek to be led if you really want to serve. If you want to serve as a leader, first learn how to submit to authority. Learn what it means to follow before you try to be first. 
serve those around you, even those above you, and then you'll be in a far better place to lead because it will be less about you and more about others. You might have heard of the name D.L. Moody. He was an evangelist of the 1800s, um, led to the Moody Bible Institute and, and several other things, um, but mightily used by God. But he once hosted a conference for a group of pastors from Europe, and their custom over there at the time was is that you would leave your shoes outside by the door in the place you would stay, and then servant boys would come along and give them a good clean and a shine, and then you'd pick them up the next day. So these European pastors at this conference, they did that. They left their shoes at the door, but that wasn't what we did in America, right? No servants were going to come and take care of business. So Moody took a look at them. He didn't want to embarrass them. He didn't want to rebuke them. So he took them to his room, and he did it himself. Didn't tell anybody, but someone saw it, and then spread the word, and then they took turns the rest of the conference, stiffing up each other's shoes for one another. Servanthood can be contagious, and it should be a part of the culture of the body of Christ. It's who we are. It starts with leaders. Seth was up here earlier. Um, I just want to say, over these past difficult years, I've seen our elders, like him and Jeff and Derek, wash me, give up their lives for you, for me. I can't tell you how grateful I am for them. But they're following in the way of the king. And if you think you want to lead, you better get ready to suffer. Because if not, you may end up like James and John and just not really have a clue about what you're getting into. Now, I've mentioned this before a time or two. We're familiar with the cross, right? That's our primary symbol of our faith. But we often argue with, we often struggle with where the cross leads, how it applies. I mentioned before Paul Miller's book, The Jager. So he says, he, he offers this idea. We should look at this J symbol as a picture of, of the way Christ takes us in our walk with him. Now that, that font doesn't have the best downward slope to the bottom of the J. But picture, we're going down. We go low. We drink the cup. We're baptized into his death. And then in the proper time, we're raised up in him. We experience his resurrection. We go through suffering. The glory is down the road. We humble ourselves, and that's the way to true greatness. That's so helpful as a reminder. This is what the Christian life is. This is what suffering is, how we understand suffering. This is how we understand repentance and faith. We're meant to walk in that J curve. We aren't just people who serve cars, we're servants. I want to turn to the rhythm now. If, you're, if you are a builder, you spend time looking over blueprints, you hammer in a lot of nails, you spend a lot of time with blows. If you're a Christian, if you're a servant, if that's who you are, it leads to a rhythm, you get. It's what you do. Here's how we express this in cars. We consistently give to one another in love, using our gifts for the good of the community. What do servants do? What's the rhythm of our lives? We give. Of our time, of our talent, of our treasure. Um, here we also use four adverbs that describe how we want to give. Sacrificially, we give until it hurts, until it actually impacts our lifestyle. 
Systematically, sure, it's awesome to give spontaneously, but it's far better to help leaders get on a schedule, help people budget. Primarily, we make ourselves part of the family. That family become, becomes ours, and we seek to carry our portion of the load cheerfully. Given with a smile, with a heart of joy, isn't always where we're at, but we long for that, we pray for that, that we would give and we would give out of love. How about when? Sure, in more formal and scheduled ways. We need help on Sundays in many ways. With kids, probably the most, but even just things like setting up the, for the Lord's Supper. We actually didn't have someone that could do that today. Most of you are in a missional community where you can meet the needs of brothers and sisters around you there. But if we give, we're also ready to, to serve whatever needs arise. And I think we're good at this. I remember a bunch of people pitched in when we sent Michael Tooley to North Carolina, bought him, sent him with a brand new guitar to lead worship there. The Swansons recently needed help moving, needed help working on a floor in his home, and people jumped in and helped. So if we're ready to give, opportunities arise, we're ready to rock and roll. What about the where? Where? Galatians 6.10 puts it this way. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So it starts here. If we're family, we serve one another. I see your problems as mine. My needs become yours, and we do whatever we can, whenever we can, to take care of one another. But yeah... We also seek to serve out in our city, and we'll get into this more in more detail in a couple of weeks. But yeah, you coach that team over in Douglas Park. You run that PTA meeting at that school. The where is everywhere. It starts here and it spreads out into the world. Now, as we do this, we walk in the way of the kingdom. Look at what Jesus says in verses 42 and 43 again. And what he teaches us. Back in the time, um, back in the day, Amy and I briefly lived in Kentucky when I was in seminary. My wife I worked in the hospital. She took care of a patient who happened to be a high-ranking leader in the Roman Catholic Church. He looked at Amy one day and said, do you realize, do you, do you know just who I am? Now she, of course, you know, she's funky, but as you know, but she, of course, thought, I think initially, well, I'm Protestant, you know, it doesn't really mean a lot to me. But second, she thought, I'm just going to treat you like I treat everyone else. Jesus says here, you know what the Gentiles, what the non-believers do. They throw their weight around. They make sure all know exactly who's in charge and who they are. Jesus says, that's not the way of the kingdom. He says, but it shall not be so among you. Jesus says, act like Christians, not Gentiles. And give. Resist glory. Don't lean into it. Empty your lives. Don't fill yourselves up with it. That's what we're called to do. But our tendency is to take, right? Because we're sinful. To be consumers. To use others to get. Like James and John here. We want to use Jesus. We want to use others. Not contributors, but consumers. And it's sad, but it goes against how God wants us to live. 
We all long for power, but we also probably more want comfort. To not be inconvenienced, to not be challenged. We long for purpose in our lives, but we want comfort more. I like the way Michael Horton has put it. He says, everyone wants to save the world, but no one wants to do the dishes. <laughs> Maybe it's in doing the little things and in making ourselves little that we'll end up finding our purposes and becoming a part of changing the world. America is such a consumeristic place. And we just want, we think it's our birthright for people to do stuff for us. I think it's why we've all gotten upset when we haven't gotten our cheap plastic crap in the mail fast enough. Or when we've sat in a drive-thru for an hour. Hey, this is America. What's going on here? Here's what's hard to say. Um, but something's happening across America, and we're even seeing it in the church, and especially post-COVID. It's really been hard to get people to serve. It really has been. I think we're better than those places, but we're still struggling. I mean, we could say we want to impact our city, um, but we still have to sign up for things like the, the trick-or-treat trail. We could say we want to have a gathering here that, that um, exalts Jesus and impacts people, but we still need people to come and set up for the Lord's Supper. Too much of the time, the church can feel kind of like the football game I was at last night, where you have 22 people on the field again who are exhausted, giving it all, and you have 60,000 people in the stands eating hot dogs and watching. This can't be if we're servants, if our rhythm is to, to give. Now, I know that it can be a drag to talk about stuff like this. But here's the irony. The more we give, the more we get. I don't want to sound like a TV evangelist as I say that, but the reality is, is as we give, we do receive. The Bible talks about it's more blessed to give than receive. Those are the words of Jesus. More blessed to give than receive. So as we give, we're blessed. Not only do our hearts become full, so do our hands. As we care for other people, we find them caring for us. God meets our needs. He blesses us. So we just have to trust Him for that part. Here's another something, I need, point I need to clarify. Where are we getting the stuff that we give? Maybe you read the book uh, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. But he says it's like a kid who asks his dad for money so that she can buy him a Christmas present. It still gives him pleasure, but he's still the one that bought the gift, right? There's this important thing that we can't forget as we think of ourselves as, as servants. Paul said, what do you have that you did not receive? Everything we have comes from him. So we're not just servants, we're stewards, right? We're managers, right? If, if you manage a Taco Bell, you know, you're not buying the, the meat that you're serving, right? You're, you're, you're not likely buying the building. I mean, I know there's franchising and stuff like that. I'm not sure how they, they run it. But you're, if you're the manager, you're just taking what's given you, given you, and you're trying to run it, it well. You're trying to be faithful. God has given us our days. He's given us our time. God's given us so many gifts, spiritual ones, material ones. And we're to act like stewards 
and use them well and be faithful again. Earlier I gave a challenge for leaders. This applies to everyone, for all members. First, receive help yourself and don't just be a person who gives. Receive help yourself and don't just be a person who gives. Pride can go both directions. You can be the person who feels this need to be served. But you can also be the person who feels this, who feeds this desire to be needed. You can prove yourself by how awesome you serve, and you can prove how awesome you are by not being a person who needs serve. You say you have trouble asking for help. Purely, that's not good. If you don't want to be a charity case, then Christianity isn't really a good fit, right? Because Jesus came and taught a message of grace. So I would encourage you to humble yourself and not only serve, but allow people to serve you. Second, give even when you don't feel like you will receive. This one's hard. Too much we let this pursuit of our calling get in the way of our actual serving. Hear me. Yes, pursue how you think you're gifted to serve. We want to help you do that. But also serve in ways that are needed. Maybe that'll be a way that God prepares you to serve. Maybe that'll be the way that God gets to your heart. So don't just try to feel useful. Actually be useful. I love this. Tim Keller talks about three ways that we can think about our calling. He talks about affinity, what I like to do, ability, what I truly can do, and opportunity, what needs to be done. Affinity, what I like to do, ability, what I can do, opportunity, what needs to be done. Hear me say, absolutely pursue A and B. Absolutely. But don't miss out when people come asking for help. Proactively seek to meet needs that you see all around. And don't just try to meet this need inside of you. And think about this. When we serve in ways that don't excite us, or maybe really stretch us, it gives us more of an opportunity to trust in God's grace. It gives me joy when I think about the group of people that serve our youth and cars so tirelessly. Now, I happen to think that they enjoy it, and I think they're good at it, but they saw a need in our body, and they said, we're going to help meet that need. We've never had the traditional youth pastor, and I don't miss that model at all. That's what it looks like when we see ourselves as servants, and we give, where we point our lives to Jesus, where we pour out our lives like Jesus and we love. Well, much just like I've been doing through this series, I want to close, um, well, I've got a few things after this, but I want to give you seven probing questions to help you as you seek to apply this. First, in what ways are you avoiding this identity? What needs are you ignoring? Would those around you call you a servant? Second, would you say your life is characterized by humility? Does it show up in the way you give? in the way you allow others to give to you. And third, as you think about your giving, where might you be holding back? And what areas do you need to grow? Fourth, would you say that your gifts are used for others? Are you also serving in ways that are needed? Fifth, do you bristle when the church talks about giving? 
Does it really annoy and irritate you? What, why could that be? What might it say about how you view God? Sixth, in what ways do you resist being served by others? How do you try to prove yourself by your serving? And seventh, which fits really with this whole series, how might you be attempting to build an identity apart from God? And how do you need to better lean into your identity in Christ? Well, the thing that I didn't get into much is why we give. How do we give the kind of heart of love that gives with our hands? I talked about at the beginning about, about how we see service, how we see giving in God himself. One, one motivation we have is we get this privilege of imaging him, of showing his glory in the world. But another comes as we think about what God has done for us. <laughs> we don't want to give out of guilt. We don't want to give out of grief. We want to give out of grace, right? Why did we end up not seeing ourselves as servants and not living a lifestyle of giving? Gospel forgetfulness. We forget how much we've been loved in Christ. I think of 2 Corinthians 8, 9, where Paul says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You know, remember from earlier, I talked about one of the, the terms used in the Bible for servant was used in that day, more a popular usage, as a table waiter, right? Have you ever talked to someone who waits tables on Sundays at noon? Right? Have you, have you talked to someone where, where folks leave church and they go and give the servers what they deserve after they just heard this message of grace. That can't be. We can't forget in 10 minutes the drive to the restaurant of what God has done for us in Christ and not be a blessing to people. What gets in the way to us being an example of the king and, and walking in the way of his kingdom? Again, it's, it's gospel forgetfulness. We need gospel wakefulness. We need to remember what he's done for us. And praise Him for what He's done for us. That'll give us the motivation for giving and serving. My wife um, serves tirelessly. I like to brag about her with that. Sometimes she takes it a bit far through her through her pain. Um, having a problem with the Apple product today for some reason. Now, before she was a Christian, before I knew her, before she was a part of a church, um, she apparently used to move herself into apartments. So I'm talking about imagine her, she was in her 20s, but imagine her trying to take a dresser up flights of stairs and a mattress and televisions, right? Um, so she's not sitting on the side and watching her brother do the work, but she's also not leaning on others and allowing them to share the load. A few years back, Right before we were about to move into our new home, I played a pickup basketball game. Hadley was there and Darren was there. Some guy who thought I was in a football game smashed my wrist to bits. And so I had surgery on my wrist. I couldn't do anything. But it, there, was, there was no Amy there strapping a couch to her back. Um, we had the family of God surrounding, helping, supporting us in that. It was, it was awesome. You know, Chuck pulls up his trailer and and um, everybody just takes care of business. Imagine if we all worked together, if we carried each other's burdens. 
No one would break your back. Everyone would feel a part of the family. We'd get a whole lot more done. No one would look like a superhero and steal glory from Jesus. Everyone could serve our Lord and make him look great. May that be us, Carus, as we seek to be servants and as we seek to give our lives. Let's pray. God, um, we praise you as we go into the supper, as we just think about what you've done for us and how kind you have been for us and you are every moment. God, we, we don't give to earn anything from you. Um, we give out of worship, out of a response. And I just pray that you would just be doing a work in our hearts, in our body, um, just all the time, that we'd be living in worship and that would just spill out as we are at work and at school and here together. And that would honor you, Lord.